0: Hello and welcome to Employment Talk. We're here to discuss the HR issues affecting you and keep you up to date with the latest employment law news. I'm Glenn Hayes, National Head of Employment Law at Irwin Mitchell.
1: Hi, I'm Joe Mosley. I'm a support lawyer in the team. I write our blogs and newsletters and keep the team and our clients up to date with what's happening in the world of employment law.
0: So Jo, we've had a month off. I've been to Corfu, a nice time. The only downer on it was I had to take my children with me. Um, it's been a nice nice little break though how are you getting on you're not going to moan at me about being full of cold or anything like that are you well you know that i am because i've just told you <laughs> that i'm full of cold
1: <laughs> so thanks for the sympathy but yeah i'm all right otherwise
0: what's on the agenda today
1: well i want to look at performance management and specifically the general requirements that employers should follow and what the acas code has to say about capability dismissals I want us to talk about what reasonableness looks like in the context of unfair dismissal claims and why employers need to consider making reasonable adjustments to performance management processes if an employee is disabled. And then I thought that we could finish by looking at whether or not you need to go through the same process for new starters or whether you can shortcut it in some way. And of course, because I don't want to disappoint you, there will be a few quiz questions thrown in as we go along. Lovely. So, are you ready? I am. Fabulous. Okay. So, let me start by asking you to outline the general principles that apply to managing employees' performance, please, Glenn.
0: Okay. Well, look, the starting point is that employers have to adopt a fair procedure. And clearly, that's relevant to unfair dismissal claims outside of performance management, but it's definitely relevant here. So an employer has to establish the facts. Look, they have to gather evidence, provide examples to the employee, and ask the employee to attend a meeting to discuss the reasons for the decline in the performance. So what that will usually um, be the form of is some form of statement from a manager or, or something like that, or some facts and figures that show uh, that decline. And it will usually be a formal process where the individual will have the right to be accompanied with all that information given to them in advance of that meeting. At the meeting itself, the meeting really is to talk through the issues, you know, obviously talk through the underperformance, ask what the explanation for that is before deciding on them, then how to proceed. And obviously, depending on what that underperformance is, it will depend on what action uh, the employer decides to take thereafter. So, for example, if you know if if you're a target-related business and you've got to sell 10 widgets and you've only sold two. You know, there might be a a performance management process in place, to, to, for example, to sell five with a bit of support. And it's important that that meeting really sort of works out what that support will be that's provided and sets a reasonable time scale for an employee to achieve this. So often it's quite useful to try and get the employee's agreement to those things in the meeting. Mm. Thereafter, you've got to monitor the progress. So you don't just wait until the end of the review period itself and then tell somebody they failed. And then obviously, if you've issued a, a, a warning, then explain what will happen if they don't meet the required standard going forward. So so the employee, the idea behind it is to keep the employee fully aware of what's going on, give them some support and uh, hopefully try and get them off that plan and, and have their performance improve. But if not, have a, a system in place to, to deal with that if it doesn't. Yeah. OK. So
1: in terms of deciding what action to take, does an employer have to start at the beginning of the process and, for example, give a verbal warning and then a first written warning and then go on to a final before dismissing or can they move straight to a final
0: written warning? Well, look, look, there's obviously an ACAS Code of Practice on disciplinary and grievance procedures that, that that I'm mindful of here, which is a statutory code which you must follow. So if you don't, the, employ, the employment tribunal can take into account that failure to follow it when um, determining the claim itself. So. That sets out the basic principles of fairness, but it does also make it clear that you can adapt that if, if, if there's a policy more comprehensive than it. Mm. So it, what that code says that in most cases, the employee should issue the employee with some form of written notice rather than just a verbal one and then only move to that final written notice if they fail to improve within the agreed time scale. Um, But it it also recognises that if that unsatisfactory performance is sufficiently serious, you can jump steps. You know, you can move directly to a final written notice. Okay.
1: so on that point, Glenn, have you
0: ever recommended that an employer start with a final written
1: warning or actually dismiss someone straight away for performance issues? Or have you seen any situations where an employer has done that?
0: Well, yes, usually for senior people rather than... um, you know, that tends to justify it or, or depending on the type of role they do. So, you know, if they're in a particular customer facing role and that performance is placing, you know, a contract or the organisation at risk or where the mistakes are potentially catastrophic, then, then you could certainly consider jumping down that route. But it, it is risky and I, I tend to see it when it becomes a more senior individual and the performance has dropped off a cliff and, you know, going through that sort of, You know fairly basic performance management process might be inappropriate for somebody of a very senior nature.
1: Yeah I was actually going to ask you about that Uh, you know specifically about employees that hold senior positions do employers have to go through a series of warnings before dismissing them or can as you say they shortcut the process in some circumstances?
0: Yeah so they might not necessarily have to go through that series of warnings and I suppose it depends on the role that they do the experience that they've got but, but what's critical in all of this is that the individual, irrespective of seniority, needs to know and understand that the job's at risk if they don't improve. So it's likely that they're going to need a final written warning, at least. I think where it tends to jump outside of this process is where the performance is such that the employer has lost all trust and confidence. And that's obviously a separate reason for dismissal altogether. And, but where it's performance management based, there is a case in the Employment Appeal Tribunal where they, they made comments in a very old case that, that said, well, look, as a matter of common sense, the higher somebody is in the managerial scale, the more likely it is that they'll be conscious of the satisfaction or lack thereof, I suppose, that the that their own performance is giving. So it suggests that employers may be able to give fewer warnings or give less time for senior employees to improve. And, and certainly that's something that I've seen where you know, organisations will come to us and say, you know, this is the MD or the FD and, it, you know, the, the, the impact of their, you know, poor performance is, is potentially more catastrophic or serious than, um, than perhaps a more junior employee.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So what about appeals? Do you have to allow an employee to appeal against any formal warning issued as part of the performance management process?
0: look again, you know, in reference to the ACAS code, uh, what they say is that where an employee feels that disciplinary action taken against them is wrong or unjust, they should appeal that decision, mm-hmm. so you know the, you know, particularly if you anticipate going on to dismiss the individual later on, you know, I think that's a very sensible option to go through, it's clearly relevant to the fairness of a dismissal, so in short, you should, you should generally allow that, I think actually the difference between an appeal for performance management and an appeal for conduct is that the appeal against performance management, anecdotally, I think is is exercised a lot less than an appeal against conduct, and okay. um, but I think you should still offer that definitely.
1: Is that generally because most managers will try and get the employee to agree to the you know to the steps that they need to take in order to improve?
0: Well, I, I think it's because a lot of the time I think there's a there's an acceptance at some level, perhaps not to the level the employer thinks. That the performance isn't quite where it needs to be. Yeah. Rather than conduct, which can tend to be black and white—you either did it or you didn't—or they, you shouldn't deserve a sanction for it, or you should. So, I think I think that tends to be the major difference, really.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I'm not sure my performance is on, you know, 100% today, but hey ho, we'll, <laughs> we'll keep we'll, um, going.
0: Maybe we'll make an adjustment for you, job We'll, no doubt, <laughs> something we'll talk about a bit later on. Uh, thank you.
1: Right. What about the time that an employer gives someone to improve? Is there a fixed period that employers need to give employees, or is it, you know, a case of, you know, looking at each matter individually?
0: Yeah, there is no fixed time period. I suppose if there was, it would make my job a bit easier. But the um, the employer basically has to act reasonably. So, yeah. and, and what is reasonable will differ from case to case. So, for, for example, if there's something that can be readily fixed, quite easily with a bit of care and attention then there there might be some decent grounds for a relatively short time period where for example it's going to take a bit a bit more you know perhaps by learning off somebody perhaps by attending a training session you know then clearly those things need to be factored in so look as a ballpark most employers give around three months to improve in the first instance but it it could be shorter or longer depending on the on the circumstances themselves Particularly if they've improved for a short period of time and then then it's lapsed. For example, so what I always think is quite useful is to sit down in the meeting and try and seek to agree. Um, and you won't always get the agreement, obviously, but at least you'll get a sort of ballpark and what the employee believes is a reasonable timescale for for improvement. Because if if the employer says, well, look, I think I should be able to hit X by you know Y time and then they haven't, then I think it becomes quite difficult for them to then say, well, the time period given to me for improvement was completely unreasonable in in, in the context of an employment tribunal claim when they've agreed themselves. So yeah, it, it's quite usual, I think, sometimes to link the timescale for improvement to a natural part of the business cycle. So for example, in a sales environment, it might be, you know, the achievement of of a quarterly sales target. It might also be relevant to consider how long they've been in, and doing that same job, so you might cut some more slack to somebody of a long standing and previous good performer, like but myself. You, then, um, yeah, 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 well, yeah. <laughs> I don't directly line manager, about but I'll t- take the I'll take your word for it. <laughs> 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 and but I think you know one of the key things is obviously to consider the reasons for underperformance, particularly where it's dropped off a cliff. So, and um, you know, and particularly if it's disability related, so you might have to give people uh, a longer time if. You're asking them to do a different type of work or a new technology or procedures in place that they're finding it difficult with. But the, the key point of performance management, and this is what you really need to think of throughout the whole process, is not to take somebody through a process to ultimately terminate them. It's to give them time and support to help them improve. So those time scales have to be realistic. OK, and they might need to be adjusted depending on disabilities or whatever. But the idea is to try and help them get their performance up to scratch, which doesn't always work, but that's certainly got to be the aim.
1: Yeah, yeah. So let's look at another practical issues. Do you see cases where an employee who's put on a paper performance improvement plan, improves within the time scales that have been agreed and then maybe a few weeks or even months later they lapse and their performance again becomes an issue. What advice would you give employers dealing with those sorts
0: of issues Glenn? Yeah well I think the first advice would be to take a deep breath Joe because I think yeah. <laughs> I think this is the thing that probably drives most employers mad really so the employee makes a conscious effort to get the performance up to scratch to get off that pip. And uh, have the threat uh, uh, that was hanging over the head removed, and then all of a sudden he drops off a cliff again, either through the, the fact that they can't be bothered, or, which potentially is a conduct issue rather than a performance one, or mm. or just because you know something has happened, or because they they were doing extra to try and cover up the cracks type thing, so it's really tricky, I think. The Aircast guide suggests that you can impose longer warnings and make it clear to the employee that they need to demonstrate sustained improvement under those circumstances where it sort of, you know, improves and then sort of regresses a bit. So they say warnings could be given for up to 12 months. Um, and it might even be able to impose even longer warnings where they can justify doing so. But, uh, you know, the key thing about some of this really is to look at the reasons for that Um performance and if it's a behavioural issue i.e it's deliberate so they won't rather than they can't then that's a key consideration because that's not a performance issue it's a misconduct one so you do need to treat that differently
1: it can be quite a fine line though can't it to determine that
0: yeah it's really yeah and obviously not many employers really want to start a separate process but you know the conduct process tends to be much shorter. I think that the frustrating thing for employers really is that what tends to happen where we see cases is is where an employer will come to us and say, "Joe Mosley, for example, is doing really, she's been a dreadful employee for the last 18 months. And you say, well, what, what have you done about it? And they say, well, nothing. We quite liked her really. She was quite good fun. Um, <laughs> but over the morning about the odd cold here and there. Um, Don't
1: damn me with faint praise, you know. And
0: <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the the failure to deal with that performance and then all of a sudden they then want to ramp it up to a dismissal, for example, yeah. becomes yeah. quite tricky. And that that's where we see things quite often. And, you know, when you start talking to people about the timescale involved in performance management, that's where you... Sometimes end up in different conversations about, without prejudice discussions to leave the business and all of that stuff. So,
1: and I think it's true to say, isn't it, Glenn, that employees employed by public authorities, so local authorities, um, government departments like that, are normally given a lot longer time to improve than, for example, you know, private private employers.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably right, Um, but I think partly due to. Uh, a cultural thing, but also partly due to a financial one. So sometimes the pressure is is greater on those uh, private employers. But I think what what is key, I think, throughout that performance management process is the support that's provided. So, for example, if somebody's really you know suffering in a particular you know take the salesperson example I gave before about the sale of the widgets. Yeah, it's quite a straightforward thing to send somebody send the underperformer out with your best performer, for example, to to learn about how they then did a sale. You know what so like made a mentoring them, coaching yeah, type approach you know what made them close the deal whereas they they didn't or couldn't you know so are there some tips that they can learn off that person so you know and that that transgresses against law lo- across loads of different industries you know including this one and so you know it's really important to try and do that if it's something as basic as spelling mistakes or whatever then you know just use the stuff on word for example and the time scale is much shorter so you can see how this all comes into it and you know, it does, It, it they, they're all slightly different to each other, really. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, before we look at situations where the underperformance is due to a disability, would your advice change if the employee in question had less than two years service? And I raise that because, of course, employees can only bring an unfair dismissal claim if they've worked for their employer for two years.
0: Yeah. Well, I suppose the short answer is yes, but it as it, but you do have to be tread a little bit carefully. So, if the problem's caused by a disability or you suspect that it might be, then clearly there's a duty to make reasonable adjustments and that the two-year threshold um, becomes slightly irrelevant there because you wouldn't need that in order to be able to bring a claim. Um, but you'd have to go through a proper fair procedure, just time, you know, targets, time scales. You know, if they're not going to improve, you might need to make permanent or temporary changes to the role if you can. But if they've got no disability and they just can't do the job, then clearly you could do a shortened procedure or no procedure. So, and quite often employers do, in fairness, you know, take, for example, somebody who's just started, they're in the probationary period, you know, the performance isn't where you'd hoped it would be, whether you've done your due diligence at interview stage or or not. It might be that you've just got an employee that's never going to get up to scratch and you just take the view that, you know, ultimately they're never going to get to where you need them to be, serve them the notice. Um, and off the go. So there wouldn't be much that the employee could do in those circumstances to challenge them unless they fell under a reason that didn't require two years service. So one of the protected characteristics, for example, or whistleblowing matter, for example, yeah. um, or a few other uh, categories. But yeah, you could just effectively terminate them on notice.
1: And in respect of the probationary periods, um, you, which you mentioned, Does that mean that the employer has to wait till the end of the probationary period or can they cut that short and just say, you know, you've been here a month. You really aren't getting any of this. We're going to terminate you now rather than at the end of the three month probationary period.
0: Yeah, exactly that. So and quite often that is what happens, you know, rather than wait until the end of it. I mean, the the probationary period really is there to at its highest. It's there for. A framework for employee and employer to discuss how the performance is going and it's probably most commonly used level it's there to provide a shorter period of notice than what you'd otherwise have to terminate on so um which yeah. is where what the real distinction is so yeah you could you could just you don't need to wait till the end of that if you're an employer that wanted to take action so Brilliant. Thank you.
1: Right. I'm going to throw in a quiz or oh, a couple of quiz questions now okay. um, before we move on to disability. All right. Yep. So the first one, are you ready?
0: I right. as, as I'll ever be.
1: <laughs> You've had a bit of a gap, so I'm, I'm wondering oh, how you're going to oh, yeah. do with these. <laughs> okay. So F is put on a PIP, which set targets for review in June, October and January. Okay. Before the first deadline has been reached, the manager invites Mr. F to a performance meeting because he was concerned that he hadn't made sufficient progress. And at that meeting, which took place in May, so before the first target review date of June, he gave him a final written warning. And that told Mr. F that he had three months to improve and set out what they would do to assist him. However, after two months, the manager decided that he hadn't made enough progress. Mr. F was signed off sick. He tried to negotiate a settlement agreement. And when that failed, he was dismissed for performance okay. and or lack of performance. And that dismissal took place in November. So that was five or six months after the final written warning. Do you think his dismissal dismissal was fair or unfair?
0: You're going to tell me how long he was off for? or
1: um but he was signed off sick after two months so he's given his warning in may he was signed off sick for two months and then they were it was clear he wasn't coming back because they were trying okay. to enter into a settlement agreement and then when that failed he was ultimately dismissed
0: okay so i've got two, i suppose i've got two concerns about it the first is bringing forward of the time period that was set out originally yeah Um and the second is the impact of that Sickness in relation to whether the individual could reasonably achieve that performance improvement. So I'd be a bit nervous about that one. I'm, I suppose I'm sitting on the fence a little bit, but um, on, if, I had to, if I had to jump either way, I'd say that the dismissal was probably unfair. It was
1: actually fair. Oh, so well done. The, And that one went to the Employment Appeals Tribunal, and they said that both the use of a written final written warning ahead of you know ahead of the actual formal process was fair and that the dismissal itself was fair and it went on to say that the employment tribunal was entitled to say that it couldn't look behind the final written warning why it had been issued unless it was manifestly inappropriate Mm. and We normally see those sorts of arguments in respect of misconduct warnings, don't we? But the EAT said that it's that approach can apply equally to capability. So that's something maybe for employers to to bear in mind. And that was a 2019 case.
0: So, again, it's a sort of we can't substitute our own view for that of the reasonable employer, which is interesting. I just I suppose my concern really was, you know, to what extent does the absence impact the ability to. Achieve performance.
1: I don't think the absence was so significant in that case, because after after two months into the three month period that he'd been given, he was already failing. So his absence occurred after that. So I don't think that made very much difference. I think the the, you know the perhaps the more tricky bit, and that's the reason why I chose this case was why he decided in the first place to abandon this sort of process that they'd put in place at the outset in favor of a much shorter one.
0: Mm.
1: And I think it just shows that in, you know, in certain cases where it's very clear that someone isn't going to improve or is, is, won't improve without, you know, a real amount of effort on their part, you can cut cut short some of the processes that you've put in place. But as you yeah, say, yeah. you need to exercise some care.
0: So none out of one.
1: None out of one.
0: Nice, uh-uh. <laughs> you know, one of these podcasts, maybe I'm going to start asking you quizzes rather than around. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm not looking forward to that.
0: (laughs) Right, next one.
1: Okay, so this was an individual who had worked for BT for 21 years. 16 of those had been in a managerial role. So concerns were raised about his performance, and he went off work suffering from stress and depression for two months, and was referred to occupational health. He had personal problems at that time, his wife had been very seriously ill, and that had impacted um, on his own health. Anyway, at the end of October, he was put on a formal performance management programme. And in November, BT received a report from the Occupational Health Service stating that he remained quite vulnerable and that it might take him longer to fully recover and get back to his normal working routine. In January, he was notified that he had failed to make sufficient improvements and was given a final written warning. And he was then subsequently dismissed for performance grounds in July. What about him? Do you think his dismissal was fair or unfair?
0: Did he have a disability? No. His wife did though.
1: Yes. Well, I assume so. She was seriously ill.
0: Yeah. I'm going to go unfair again. You're right. Do
1: you want to give me some reasons?
0: I'm just nervous about the impact the personal stuff had on him. And again, whether he's got a reasonable opportunity to. To improve under those circumstances because the support that would be required, potentially at least, I'd need to know a bit more about what was happening. Um and ironically, I've just been advising this morning in relation to a case like this where somebody's performance isn't where it needs to be, but you know, husband's got something extremely serious wrong with them. So my advice was all really in relation to teasing out some adjustments for that for the person that's not got the disability, but who is
1: Coping the care and um, coping it,
0: yeah. with the impact on it. So I think I'd be a bit nervous about stringent timescales under those circumstances and the yeah. level of support that's been given or not given.
1: Yeah, exactly right. I mean, what the tribunal said in this case was that a reasonable employer would have given him time to restore his performance without putting him under intense management pressure. Yeah. Plus, in this case, they hadn't properly considered the occupational health report about his vulnerability. And again, they said that a reasonable employer would have delayed the implementation of a formal process and given him support to enable him to improve in a less pressurised environment. So exactly the sort of
0: advice that you've just given. But but again client. in that in that circumstance if if the employer goes to the employee and says what do you regard as a reasonable period of time and they say X and they they agree with that then I think going back to the original comment about tribunals not substituting their own view then it becomes very difficult to then undo that at a later date so you know sometimes an employer might say well i think you give me you should give me 12 months and the employer says well no it's you know that's ridiculous it should be a month but at least you've then got some parameters set and the tribunals can then decide whether 12 months versus 1 month was ridiculous for example so mm-hmm. i do think that that dialogue in those circumstances and at least it's a bit like when you've got notes from a disciplinary hearing at least try and identify the areas of disagreement you don't have to agree with the employee at the end of the day you just need to you know at least try to basically so I think
1: that's yeah. quite crucial. Yeah, I do wonder though whether, in you know, if you're in this position as an employee, whether you know some people might have the urge to sort of agree almost to anything. In well, maybe. To- You know, in order to, you know, to try and show that they're showing willing and they may indeed put, you know, agree to something that actually isn't achievable. And I I guess employment tribunal would unpick the reasons why an employee had agreed to something that was particularly well, particularly if it was manifestly unreasonable. So,
0: well, they would do, but they'd do that anyway, wouldn't they? So
1: um,
0: you're you're definitely in a better position if you've at least tried to agree with the employee. And um, and the employee on the face of it has agreed to it. So, you know, if it's if it's manifestly unreasonable, it's going to be manifestly unreasonable regardless. Yeah. So,
1: yeah, I mean, the other thing that the tribunal criticised BT about in there was that was about their performance management program itself. So BT was saying, well, look, the program that we have in place is here to support our staff. But the tribunal, whilst acknowledging that that's what it said, rejected that. Um, that argument because it said that BT had expressly contemplated dismissal as a possible outcome and therefore it imposed significant pressure on this individual. Bad BT. Bad BT. Okay. Right. Let's move on then and talk about the sorts of reasonable adjustments that employers might have to make if the employee's underperformance is due to a disability. Now, there's a recent case that we've written about on this, which has brought this whole thing to life. And I'll be interested in your thoughts about it, Glenn, because it's a difficult case.
0: Is it the menopause one, Joy, involving <laughs> direct line? It is. I know
1: how much you enjoy talking about menopause. So I do, I'm, yeah. I picked this one out specifically. So there's a lot in this case, and I'm going to try and only pick out the relevant facts. OK. So. We've got a, an employee that was previously a good employee. Performance was always spot on. But once she started menopause, sh- her performance started to decline. I think she was suffering from anxiety, depression, those sorts of symptoms. Her employer was aware of this from the outset and was initially sympathetic. So they moved her to a less pressurized job, which she agreed to. They put in place additional support. And she, Still encountered some difficulties and a problem occurred when she started to receive a few customer complaints, because although her job had changed, she was still in a customer facing role. Yeah, so she accepted that she'd behaved inappropriately when she'd taken these calls and that she needed further training. And that was duly given to her. She had lots of training, actually. But at the end of her year, year review, so at a point where they're appraising her performance, she was rated as requires improvement. And that was on the basis that she still needed a high level of support and struggled with some aspects of the job. So on that point specifically, performance rating in direct line is linked to pay. And anybody who receives a required improvement, rating is not eligible for a pay increase so obviously she didn't get one on the you know at that time now to cut a long story short her line manager lost patience with her they started a formal performance management process and gave her a warning she went off sick they then decided not to give her discretionary sick pay and she resigned she brought a number of claims and she succeeded with those related to the performance management process as well as a few others um, what the tribunal said was that she, sh- the employer shouldn't have issued her with a warning um, as it had at that time obtained evidence from occupational health that she needed more time to improve. But what I'm interested in and particularly interested in your views is on the appraisal rating. So the tribunal said that this was less favourable treatment for a reason relating or arising from her disability, so it's a Section 15 claim, and that the company should have considered giving her the benefit of the doubt. So the benefit of the doubt and rating her as good, even though her manager genuinely didn't think that she was. What the tribunal said was that she was doing everything she could to achieve within the limitations caused by her menopausal symptoms, and that scoring her in this way Is inherently unfavourable if the person, through their disability, cannot, in fact, improve or meet those required standards. And I just wondered what your thoughts are on this as a general approach, Glenn. Is it a reasonable adjustment, for example, to uprate someone's performance to ensure that they don't lose out on pay?
0: I think it's really hard, isn't it? Because you know, where do you where do you draw the line on that, and Mm. does it? Because it's related to pay, does that change things? So for example, if you're off on sick pay, okay, it's not normally a reasonable adjustment to extend somebody's pay. You know, there's a very famous case involving that, and that's because it's not really inducing them to come back to work if you're continuing to pay them at full rates, for example. So look, I think the the purpose of reasonable adjustments is to get the disabled person back to work in that example, or help them remain in work. here. Is it, is it a reasonable adjustment to uplift it in order, you know, to give them that rating? You know, does does that incentivize them to improve their performance? Is that very analogous to the case I've just described? I think it's a tricky one though.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, you've sort of more or less covered this, but, you know, when you're talking about separate appraisal ratings, which feed into wider discussions or decisions, do these need to be adjusted too?
0: Well, I, I, look, I I think a level of adjustment should be made in situations like this. Whether it's a total adjustment, i.e., I, I disregard the performance completely, the bad performance completely, effectively to move you up a level, I'm a bit uncomfortable with that. Mm. Okay, um, I can
1: see why it's
0: it's an interesting decision, isn't it? It's well, not binding, of
1: course. It's a, it's, you know, it's just a first instance. Decision. Well, and we
0: talked about redundancy the other day, if you remember, in the context of sex discrimination, where yeah. we talked about, you know, uplifting people's scores to discount all the absence entirely. So it's not that different here, I don't think, in terms of an analogy. So I, I have a bit of a problem with that. I suppose that the, you know, the real difference is in the context of disability discrimination like say, sex discrimination, you do have to treat the disabled person more favourably.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, and I think that's the distinction here, but I, th- I, think it's, I think it's a really tricky one, and I one I think would make a lot of employers feel quite uncomfortable, not least because, you know, of the impact on somebody else to say, well, hang on a second, why have I only got yeah. X performance rate and when Mrs. Bloggs over here has got Y when,
1: you know, She's because of this I condition?
0: Yeah, 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 OK.
1: Well, before we just depress our listeners,
0: or get me into trouble,
1: (laughs) yeah, let's look at the sorts of adjustments that employers may need to make to their performance management procedures if they're dealing with someone with a disability. So the more straightforward situations. Can you talk us through the sorts of adjustments that are quite common in this context?
0: Look, obviously it depends on the circumstances, but usually involves giving somebody a bit of a, a longer time period to improve. For example, it might mean that you need to provide additional training. So, you know, the the, the coaching that I talked about before would be a good example. And, um, you know, it might be that you have to provide them with additional equipment. So, you know, is there a certain type of software that might help them to do that role? For example, yeah, you know, is there certain parts of the role you need to remove altogether or find them a different role, which is better suited to their abilities, for example? know a reduction in targets would be a good a good example so again trying to agree that with the employees to what a reasonable target for them would be as opposed to somebody else so you know all those things will be the sort of normal type adjustments that will be or that should be considered really
1: yeah and the interesting thing about that direct line case is it did a lot of those things it moved her to another less stressful job she'd been given extensive training and coaching the problem in that case was that the manager had lost patience with her um, because there was not a sufficient amount of progress after 10 months and had just then decided to move to disciplinary action
0: that was the key thing though wasn't it
1: it was it was they formed the view that she wasn't doing enough to help her own recovery or improve her performance and that led it to make to make these discriminatory decisions so yes
0: yeah Yeah. tricky
1: Indeed. So in that case, can you remember how much she was awarded in compensation, Glenn? You can either give me the total or just the injury to feelings
0: award. Well, I can't, actually, because I do read our bulletins. Sometimes <laughs> I draft them, but sometimes I don't and I read them. So look, she got about 65 grand, didn't she? Of which 30 odd thousand, I think it was about 30,000 was loss of earnings. About 30 grand was injury to feelings. And then she got a small award for aggravated damages as well. So it was about 65 grand all in 64 something was, i think it, was, it was about 65 yeah i
1: think our injury feelings was twenty-three thousand. but once you'd added interest and everything to those amounts yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what bumped it
0: up okay what a lot of money it. it
1: is a lot of money it was very much a lot of money even for a big employer like that yeah okay so i think we're gonna to have to wind it up now so let's just finish by me asking you this you've been doing this a long time glenn i know i say this quite often
0: <laughs> you make me feel so young
1: well, you're certainly younger than me, but um, do you have any top tips for employers dealing with under underperforming staff that you can share with our listeners?
0: Yeah, look, I think the key the key one is that employees shouldn't be this shouldn't be sprung on them. So they need to be aware of the concerns about the performance before they get to this stage. So it shouldn't come as a surprise. Yeah, don't let things fest and build up a list of problems. You know, quite often they just get dealt with at annual appraisal time and. You know, that comes as quite a shock or when or for example when they announce that they're pregnant which is even worse you know look good line management really will recognize when an is not functioning as well as they, they normally do you know what's the reason for that you should be having informal discussions one-to-ones about it to, to, to try and nip it in the bud early doors you know need to ensure that your line managers are equipped and trained i suppose to have those difficult conversations you know we've got training to help them develop those skills and but again you know if you can try and agree things during that process I know I've said this a few times during the, this podcast but you know that will help as well you know what what support do they think they need you know how long yeah. do, do they view as a reasonable timescale all of that will stand you in much better stead in an Employment tribunal.
1: Good advice thank you Glenn.
0: Thank you well I think that's it for today Joe so um we've had our break it's a bit longer podcast today but it's why don't we tune in a fortnight if you want to hear more about the latest employment law updates alongside expert commentary. Thanks very much for listening.
1: Thanks very much. Bye-bye.